And with that, the, uh, the children who are part of Children's Church are, can be dismissed at this time. Well, we bear with me this morning. I am at the tail end of a cold, but you know how these things go, and I uh, haven't had any problem coughing at all this morning until I came up and started speaking. So uh, if, if I start coughing in the middle of preaching, just know that that, that is what's going on, and please uh, bear with me. But this morning... If you would, turn with me once again to John chapter 8. We return to our narrative, really, that we started looking at last week. Now, last week, we found ourselves in verses 12 through 20. And this morning, (coughs) this morning, we're going to spend our time in verses 21 through 36. Now, here in America, we pride ourselves on freedom. We call America the land of the free and the home of the brave. And Thomas Jefferson even wrote in the Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. They're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that's what we consider to be the American dream, to be your own person, to pursue what you want to pursue, to be who you want to be. And that no one should really get in the way of that freedom. I'll be clear, I am grateful to live in America. And I enjoy these freedoms just as much as anybody else. And I'm grateful to those who have sacrificed so much in order to preserve these freedoms. Yet if we think about it, these freedoms that you and I enjoy are really external to us. We don't have something or someone external to us who is controlling us, but the question I want to ask this morning, is that all there is to freedom? Does freedom only consist in that which is external to us? Or does freedom, does true freedom have more to do with that which is internal? Can a person be externally free yet internally bound in slavery? Or can a person be externally bound in slavery, yet internally free? And is this idea of freedom versus slavery that Jesus engages with the crowds in our text this morning? And so for us this morning, the main thing I want us to take away from the text is that true freedom is only found in Jesus. That true freedom is only found in in Jesus, and as we work through the passage, it's going to look a little bit different this morning. As I just mentioned, there are two main themes that Jesus deals with in his conversation with the crowd in our text this morning, and that's this idea of slavery and freedom. So instead of just purely working through the text one verse at a time, we're going to structure our time together around those two themes. We're going to read through the text in its entirety first, And then we're going to focus our time pulling in appropriate verses that have to do with these two themes that are talked about. So with that in mind, I want to start with reading John chapter 8, verses 21 through 36. So he said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says, where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father, so Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him." As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? 
Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So the first, <coughs> the first point that we're going to focus on this morning is this theme of slavery, slaves to sin. If you remember from last week, Jesus made it clear to this group of Jews that they can know God through himself. And as part of that conversation, Jesus told them that he knew where he was coming from and he knew where he was going, but they did not. And so Jesus actually starts off this morning and he says something essentially the same in verse 21. He says, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sins. Where I am going, you cannot come. Now that raises several questions. Where is Jesus going? Why will they be seeking him and why can't they go where Jesus is going? Well, this is not the first time that Jesus has told the Jews and the religious leaders something like this. He said it previously in his ministry and he'll say it throughout the rest of it. He told them earlier in the Feast of Tabernacles back in John 7, and this is verse 33 through 34, he says, Jesus then said, I'll be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. So Jesus had already told them he would be going to him who had sent him. Now, they didn't fully understand what he meant, but we do. We know that Jesus is talking about going back to the Father after his death, his burial, and his resurrection. He even makes this explicitly clear to his disciples later in his ministry. In John chapter 14, verse 28, Jesus says, You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Well, there's no mystery here, Jesus as he clearly says, is returning to the Father, which we know is where he came from. But the crowds, of course, they didn't fully comprehend what Jesus meant. Back in John 7, when he says this, they ask him, what, is he going to go to the Gentiles? Is he going to go to the dispersion that's in other lands? And in verse 22 in our text this morning, they ask, is he going to kill himself? Is that why we can't go where he is going? And so Jesus responds in verse 23, he said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Jesus is from above and they are from below. They are from this world, Jesus is not. And Jesus makes the same distinction between himself and the world later in his ministry. He's praying to the Father in John chapter 17. And he says, in verses 14 through 16, he says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And so John, you know, John who's been following Christ throughout his ministry, he gets his understanding about the world from, his teach, from these teachings of Christ. And we see that fleshed out in his own writings. In 1 John chapter 2, <clears throat> verses 15 through 17, John writes, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So what does Jesus mean here? Well, the world is this sinful world and all that makes it sinful, right? The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. When Jesus tells them they are from below and of this world, he means they are of this world system. They are part of the kingdom here on earth, not part of God's kingdom. They may think they are part of God's kingdom, but he is telling them that they are not. 
And since they are part of the world's kingdom and not God's, they cannot go where he is going. And that is huge. And it's, it's huge because the Jews, to be clear, the Jews thought that they were already in. They thought that they were already part of God's kingdom. They thought they were a lock-in for the future of being with God as his chosen people. They even tell Jesus later in this passage in verse 33, they say, we are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? They were counting on the fact of their physical lineage to save them. Yet Jesus says here and later as well, their physical lineage cannot save them at all all. Salvation is not a result of your bloodline. The Jews may be God's chosen people, yet that fact is not the foundation upon which they would be saved. (coughs) As a matter of fact, to be clear, the Jews had it wrong the entire time. It actually did not save them back in the Old Testament any more than it would have saved them in Jesus's time. Salvation was never external. It was only ever internal heart transformation. And this is important to understand. There was, to be clear, there was not one way of salvation in the Old Testament and a different way of salvation in the New Testament. It has always been the same. Understanding your sin before a holy God and placing your trust in God alone to save you. Now back in the Old Testament time, they didn't have the entire revelation of God's plan of redemption. So they placed their trust in what God had chosen to reveal to them about a future Messiah. We were were placing our trust in the same Messiah. They were looking forward to a promised Messiah and placing their trust in him. We look back to the Messiah who has already come and we place our trust in him. But the way of salvation is the same. It was always internal. And the Jews... They missed it. And as a result, Jesus tells them the reason they cannot go where he is going, that they are not part of the kingdom of God and they are not going to be, is because they will die in their sin. Now notice in verse 21, that word sin is singular. There is a a singular sin that Jesus is referencing here. And what is that sin? What is Jesus talking about well he'll explain what he means in verse 24 but before we get to that notice that this sin prevents them from going to the father it prevents them from being a part of the kingdom of god so much so it so much prevents them that they will seek him and not find him and and the question is what does that mean it seems a little strange when he says that that they will seek him well we know that the jewish religious leaders were seeking a way to kill jesus And we know ultimately that they incite the Jewish people to call for his crucifixion. They were happy to see him go. So the question is, why would they seek him? What does that mean? Well, it simply means that after Jesus was gone physically from the earth, they would continue to seek for the Messiah. And they would not find the Messiah because they missed him. He had already come. They would continue to go on searching for the way to Messiah, which the Jewish people do still to this day. They're still waiting for the promised Messiah, whom they cannot find because he has already come. They missed him. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying they missed their Messiah who is standing right in front of them and they would keep on missing him. But what is this sin that Jesus is talking about? Well, he explains it very simply in verse 24. He says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Jesus states explicitly while they're dying in their sin, they will die in their sin because they do not believe, as Jesus says, that I am he. Now, this phrase is particularly important. We see Jesus actually say it twice this morning, and he will say it again next week. He says in verse 24, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. He says it again in verse 28, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. When Jesus says, I am he, he is referring to a specific name of God. And I think we easily pass by it when we read this. 
But the Jews who were listening to him in that moment would have understood exactly the implications of what he was saying. In the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament, we see the same phrase, I am he, the same words that Jesus is using here in our passage this morning. We see it in the Old Testament. We see it in Isaiah 43, verse 10, which says, You are my witness, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Same word, same phrase. The Lord God refers to himself as I am he. And this even harkens back even earlier to the first time that God gave a name for himself to somebody. When God first appears to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, we read this in 3 verses 13 through 14. He says, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Same phrase. And he said, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. This phrase that God uses exclusively for himself and himself alone in the Old Testament is the same phrase that Jesus uses to describe himself in John chapter 8, verse 24. To be clear, Jesus is equating himself with God and is saying that unless you believe in this Jesus, this fully man, fully God, Jesus, then you will die in your sins. So what is this sin? It's unbelief. They do not believe that Jesus is who he has been declaring himself to be this entire time. And what is so incredibly important to note here is what Jesus is focusing on. Notice what he is not saying. He doesn't say they will die in their sins because they weren't good enough. He doesn't say they'll die in their sins because they didn't perform enough good deeds. He doesn't say there is any work that they must do in order to be saved. He says that it ultimately comes down to the object of their faith. Where or in whom are they placing their faith, and their trust. Be clear, everybody puts their faith in something or someone. Everybody does. When you got in your car this morning, you put your trust in the engineers who designed it and the workers who put it together. You put your trust in the mechanics who who keep it tuned up and fix any problems in it. You trust that the tires are going to stay on, that when you press the brake, the car's going to stop. When you press the accelerator, the car's going to go. We actually put our faith or trust in a lot of things throughout our day. This is just one example. The question is not whether you have faith, but what or who are you placing your faith or your trust in? Are you putting your faith in someone or something else, or are you putting your faith, your trust, in the great I am? Jesus says that the object of your faith is the most important question that you have to answer. And the answer to this question, how you answer that, has eternal significance. Now Jesus starts here with the negative. If the the object of their faith is not in him, in Jesus, then they will die in their sins. And that is true for us today as well. If Jesus is not the object of our faith, then we will die in our sins and we will not go to the Father. We will not be a part of God's kingdom. That's what Jesus is saying. And in the face of that, they still question his identity. After all that, in making that clear, they they say in verse 25, Who are you? In the face of everything Jesus has said and he has done, they still cannot believe that Jesus is who he says he is. So he responds in verses 25 through 30. Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. 
They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Jesus, he's saying Jesus is exactly who he's been saying and showing that he is. He holds to what he's been saying, and he tells them, I actually have much more to say to you. Much more to say to you, even if it's in judgment. But even if I do speak to you in judgment, I still don't speak on my own, is what he says. He says he speaks what the Father has told him, and he always perfectly aligned with the will of the Father. But they will not truly understand who he is until they have lifted him up. What does Jesus mean by this phrase, lifted him up? To be clear, when Jesus talks about being lifted up, he's always referring to his act of redemption on the cross. This is the focal point of his sacrifice. To be clear, Jesus is not saying that they're all going to be saved when they crucify him, but he is saying one of the functions of the cross is to reveal to the world who he truly is. Jesus is exalted and he is glorified on the cross. I like what D.A. Carson has to say about verse 28. He says, The exaltation of Jesus by means of the cross is also the exaltation of Jesus on the cross. That is the event which, though perpetrated by his enemies, establishes Jesus' claim most forcefully. Then you will know that I am he. One of the functions of the cross is to reveal who Jesus is. That is when the Jews will know the truth. By this, John is not saying that all of Jesus' opponents will be converted in the wake of the cross. But if they do come to know who Jesus is, then they will know it most surely because of the cross. And in this act of redemption of Christ on the cross, the Father is pleased. That's what he's saying in verse 29. Jesus doesn't do this on his own accord, but he does this in loving submission to the Father. And this, the Father is with him, and the Father is always pleased. And at the end of all this, verse 30, it says, many believed in him. So the question we come then at this moment is, what kind of faith is this? He's explained himself once again. Is this faith, is this genuine faith, or is this fickle faith? Well, Jesus is going to make it clear this morning as well as next week that this, whatever this believing in him is, it is not genuine faith at all. And so we want to continue on this theme that we're on, and we're going to jump ahead to verse 31, and we're going to read verses 31 through 34. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. <coughs> now we'll come back to verses 31 and 32 when we move on to the next theme. But for now, notice how the crowd takes what Jesus is saying in verse 33. They understand by his statement that he is calling them slaves. And by their response, to be clear, when they say, we have never been enslaved to anyone, they cannot mean that they as a people have never been physically slaves to anyone. For them to make that kind of statement, they would have to forget the entire history as a people. They've been slaves in Egypt. They've been slaves to Assyria. They've been slaves to Babylon. They were currently not in control of their own country as they were part of the Roman Empire. So in this sense, when they say that, they're not speaking in a physical sense here. They understood what Jesus was telling them, and they are speaking in a spiritual one. What they are saying when they say that is, they are clinging to, as we talked about earlier, their Jewish heritage. They say they are free... They're not slaves. They say, we're free because we're the children of Abraham. 
They understand that Jesus is speaking about spiritual slavery versus spiritual freedom. They did not see themselves as slaves. Jesus has already made it clear there's only one thing that can set a person free, and that is belief or faith in him. Their ethnicity, the fact that they are a chosen nation, will not save them. And Jesus actually tells them that they're... They actually manifest their slavery by the way that they live. He tells them in verse 34, truly, truly. Now, be clear, when you read that in Scripture, that's a way in Scripture of emphatically saying, listen to what I'm about to say. What I'm about to say is really, really important. So Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Now John picks up this teaching and he emphasizes it in one of his other letters and we see it in verse John chapter 3. And we can hear him, you can hear Jesus' words coming out of John in 1 John 3 verses 4 through 9. <coughs> he says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practice lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning." The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. To be clear, to be clear, this does not mean that as a Christian, if you have a sin struggle, then you're not really a Christian. At the same time that John says this, he also writes at the beginning of 1 John, he says in 1 John 1, 8 through 10, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his truth is not in us. So what are we to do with that then? What does Jesus mean when he says that those who practice sin are a slave to sin? Well, the person who practices sin isn't fighting against sin. They aren't in the daily struggle. They don't stumble into sin. They dive into it. It is their heart disposition. Their heart disposition is towards sin. It doesn't overtake them. They embrace it. They make plans for it. They live their lives in pursuit of it. And if they are caught and have to deal with the consequences of their sin, they're not sorrowful because they have sinned. They're sorrowful because they're suffering the consequences for their sin. There's no evidence of genuine repentance. It is really all about themselves. It's important to understand then Jesus' description of this person who practices sin, who lives this lifestyle of sin. He calls them slaves. So I'm going to use Jesus' words this morning. They think they are free, but they are actually slaves. They're not free at all. I'll be clear, not everyone gives the fullest expression of their slavery to sin by the grace of God, but they are slaves nonetheless. They are bound to sin and they cannot get themselves now, this is hard in our American culture where we value individual freedom and autonomy above everything else. And in a political, social, cultural sense, that may be true, but in the most important sense, it may not. A, a, a person can experience all the freedoms of this life, yet be a slave to sin. That is what Jesus is saying, and in doing so, he makes a clear statement about our spiritual need apart from him. 
If we're all born slaves to sin, then we must see ourselves as slaves before we will ever look for someone to come and free us from our slavery. If we, like those in our narrative this morning, don't see ourselves in our natural condition apart from Christ as slaves to sin, then we will see no need for someone to come and to set us free. This is like the scene, and I have to say, I, I really enjoy A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. It's, it's one that I, I watch every year, a specific version of it, and I do like to read it as well. And there's a scene in there with Ebenezer Scrooge and Jacob Marley. Jacob was his partner, and they live a very sinful, self-focused, selfish life, and Jacob had died, but yet Jacob comes and he returns to speak to Ebenezer. And as he comes, he's bearing the weight of the chains of his sinful life that he knows he is going to bear for all of eternity, and he comes to Ebenezer to warn him. Ebenezer looks around and he says, what chains? Ebenezer thinks he is free, yet he is actually burdened by an enormous chain that he cannot see. And that is what it is like to be a slave to sin. This is the description of the lost person in their natural state of every single person apart from Christ. Slaves of sin. Don't sugarcoat it. Don't make it sound good. It doesn't matter what a person does in this life apart from Jesus. They are a slave to sin. You and I, before God saved us, for those of us who are saved this morning, we were slaves to sin and we could not free ourselves. We did not believe that Jesus was the great I am. We did not believe in who Jesus had revealed himself to be. And therefore, we were destined to die in our sins and not be a part of God's kingdom. And that's the first theme this morning that Jesus focuses on is this slavery to sin. But I don't want to leave it there. If I leave it there, then we have no hope. What hope do we have then? If we're all slaves to sin when we are born and we cannot free ourselves, what are we to do? How can we be set free? And with that, we come to the next part, which is the main point, is free in Christ. Free in Christ. And we come to the most important text this morning. We come to the focal point of what Jesus is saying, going to say to you and me this morning, and that's in verses 31 and 32. <coughs> we read, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Who is a true or a genuine follower of Jesus Christ? It is someone who abides in Jesus' words. And what does it mean to abide in his words? Well, to be clear, this idea of abiding, this word that Jesus uses, he uses throughout this book of John, and John uses in his other letters. But this isn't the first time we have this idea presented to us in the book of John. Back in John chapter 6, verses 53 through 58, Jesus says to the crowds, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. So Jesus had already said that abiding in him is this personal relationship 
with him. It is taking in all of Christ. Jesus explains it further in John 15. I read that lengthy passage uh, before we took up the offering in John 15, verses 1 through 17, where Jesus makes it abundantly clear that our very source of spiritual life and growth is sourced only in Christ. He even says we can do nothing. Nothing as believe. We can do nothing apart from him. And you can just imagine as John is traveling with Jesus and he's hearing these words. Once again, we see it flow out of his writing. This theme of abiding in Christ. He does this throughout 1 John as well as 2 John. And he makes it really clear at the end of 2 John. 2 John verse 9, this is what he says. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. What is he talking about here? He's he's talking about union with Christ. In other words, if we are united with him, if we abide in his words, then we are truly or actually, genuinely his disciples and we will remain in him. The spiritual reality for every believer this morning is that you abide in Christ. He is, you are in him and he is in you. This is exactly what Steve has spent eight weeks preaching about. Every believer here is united with Jesus. You abide or you remain in him. And this is evident because you remain in his words, in his Teachings you hold to, you cling to, you come back to over and over again the words of Christ that are found in Scripture. All of Scripture points to Jesus, to those who are in Christ, are in His words. Do you understand? You see, you cannot, you cannot have one without the other. Either you are in Christ or you are not. Either you remain in His words or you do not. Oh, but if you remain, you have the Father and the Son. If you do not, you don't have either. It's that simple. There is no middle ground. <coughs> but, but if you do, if you do abide in his word, Jesus gives amazing promises. First, he says that if you abide in his words, then you will. Not you might not maybe, you will know the truth. This is a certainty. If you are in Christ, if you abide in his words, then you will know the truth. Why? Because the truth is found in his words. And what truth is he referring to here? It's the truth of who Jesus is. Remember, that is why he said the crowds were going to die in their sins because of their unbelief. So his true disciples, in contrast, know the truth about Jesus. These crowds could not see the great I am of Christ. They couldn't see the truth of who he was. But Jesus' disciples can. They know the truth. They know that Jesus is the I am. That Jesus is God. And what is the result of knowing? Not just head knowledge, but experientially knowing, abiding in this truth of Christ. What does he promise? He says that the truth, that this truth will set you free. What will it set you free from? Well, the context makes it clear. These, these people, 
Everyone, apart from Christ, we, we, we made the case, and Christ makes the case that they're slaves to sin. And as slaves, they did not believe that Jesus was God. They didn't believe Jesus' claim about himself. And as a result, they're going to die in their sins and not be a part of God's kingdom. That means that those who are truly Jesus' disciples will know the truth about who Jesus is. And this truth will set them free from slavery to sin. This is a glorious truth. Hear me this morning. Everyone, everyone who abides in Christ is not, is not a slave to sin. They're free. And Jesus makes this point even more clear. He gives an illustration. In verses 35 and 36, he, he says, The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed, or you will truly be free. Now this is a simple illustration. There's a household, and there are two characters, right? There's the Son, and there's the slave. And the Son is a permanent member of the household. As such, he has all the benefits that go with being a son. He has full inheritance rights. Nothing can change his status as the son. The slave, however, does not have such a status. The slave can be sold. The slave can be given away at any time. The slave has no rights of inheritance. That's a picture. Jesus is the son in this illustration. He is the unique son of the father. In this crowd, everyone apart from Christ, they're the slaves, slaves to sin. The son is a member of the household of God, and they are not. They think they are, but they are not. They are slaves to sin. They are not members of God's house, and as such, guess what? They can do nothing on their own to change their status. That is the other point. As slaves, they can do nothing to change their station. It is not within their power to do such a thing. They're slaves. Oh, but the son, the son has been given full authority by his father to set slaves free. The unique son of God is the only one who can set someone free from slavery to sin. And Jesus says that since a slave cannot free themselves, slave can do nothing to free themselves, then if the Son sets you free, you are truly free. Do you hear what is being said this morning? If the Son sets you free, then you are free indeed. If the Son sets you free, He changes your status. You are no longer a slave to sin. You are now a free child of God. If you are a believer here this morning, that is the truth about you. You are not a slave to sin. I want that to sink in for a moment because it is a truth that I know can be hard to truly comprehend. I know it can be for myself. It can be hard because it's not how I feel oftentimes. My daily struggle against sin many times feels like something I cannot get free from. It feels like something I must give into, something that I have to do, something that I keep going back to. But the truth for your heart this morning and mine, if the Son has set you free, then you are free indeed. You are free from the power of sin in your life. You are not a slave to sin. No matter how you feel this morning, if you are in Christ, then the truth is you are not a slave to sin. You are free. You, by the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells inside of you, can choose do not sin. You, 
by the power of the Spirit inside you, can choose to do that which pleases God. Those who are slaves do not have such a choice. They're not free to not sin. They are slaves to sin, and they act out that slavery in the way that they live their lives. But if you have repented of your sins and you've put your trust in Christ, if you are abiding in Christ, if you are united with Christ, as he, if he has saved you and set you free and adopted you into his household, then that is not true about you. You are now free to do that which pleases God. And I say along with the Apostle Paul this morning in Galatians 5.1, he says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. If you are free, why would you put yourself back under a yoke of slavery as if you were not free? In other words, if you are free in Christ, then start acting like it. That is the message this morning. That's the takeaway for believers here this morning. Since true freedom is only found in Jesus, then we should act like we are free. But what does it look like then as believers to act as if we are free? Well, like all things in the Christian life, it starts with the way we think. We have focused this morning on the fact that as followers of Jesus, we abide in his words and we're free from the power of sin in our lives. What are the results or the fruits of abiding in his words? Well, there are many. I want to focus on just those and we focus on what John in his writings in the gospel and in his letters focuses on. To help with the references uh, on the back of the notes that you have. And if you didn't get notes, please get them on their way out. But on the back, you'll find them printed on the back. And I want to run through them briefly. I've, I've listed them. There are 15 at least I put together. And I wrote them on the back of your notes because as I go through these, I want you to just listen. I want the reality of the truth of the word to wash over you this morning and just hear the sheer volume of what is found, and, and be clear, this is only in the writings of the Apostle John. He says, if, if Christ's words abide in you, you believe in him as the Son of God, you are united with Jesus, you are Jesus' disciples, you will bear fruit, you will not be condemned. You will be aligned with God's will. You will be loved like by Jesus. You will obey Jesus. You will desire to live like Jesus. You will love your brothers and sisters in Christ. You will overcome the evil one. You will be confident when Jesus returns. You will not live a lifestyle of sin. You will have the indwelling spirit and you will have the Father and the Son. And I hope that your heart Uplifted by those truths this morning. If you are in Christ, if you abide in his words, then every single thing on that list is true about you. They're all true. Every single one. No matter how you feel. No matter what kind of week you have had. No matter how many times you have fought the same sin struggle. They are all true. All of it. If these things are true, then why do we act as if they aren't? Why do we use language when we talk about our sin struggles as if we have no choice? As if we said that thing, thought that thing, acted that way, held that sin in our hearts because we just, we just couldn't do anything else. I mean, we maybe the way it feels a lot of times, but as I mentioned before, I want to make this clear. It doesn't mean what I'm not saying, because I don't want you to misconstrue my words. What I'm not saying is that if you are in Christ, that you will not struggle with sin. As long as we are on this side of glory, we are not perfect, and we will never reach perfection. That will only happen whenever that moment is that that, that we go and we are with Christ. What it does mean, however, is that we should spend our days as Christians on this journey growing to become more like Jesus. That is the goal. 
And that goal is possible because we are free in Jesus. Remember, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Freedom from the control and power of sin in our lives. We are now free to not sin and to live a life that is pleasing to God. You are not a slave to sin if you are in Christ. You're free from the power of sin and you are adopted into the household of God. You will share in the inheritance of the only Son of God. And nothing can change your status because it's not yours to begin with. It was bought for you by the very life of Christ. And it's so important, I feel I have to say it again. If you are free from the power of sin, you are no longer slaves to sin if you are in Christ. So what do we do with this truth? Well, years ago when we were working through the book of Romans, there was a a question that was asked, I think it's appropriate for this morning, and that was, where do you need to change first, and where do you need to change most? And the truth from this morning is that whatever that area is that you're thinking about, when I ask that question, where do you need to change first, where do you need to change most, whatever that area it is that first comes to your mind, you have freedom from the power of that sin in Christ. It doesn't necessarily mean you'll ever be free from the temptation of that sin, or free from the struggle, or free from the fight, but it does mean that you do not, by the power of the Spirit, have to live your life enslaved to it. In Christ, you are free. So very simply, this morning, let us start our journey by changing the language that we use. Words are important. What we say about God is important. So let's start aligning our thinking with that of Scripture. So be open and honest about your sin struggles. Take them before God. Keep yourself accountable with other believers that you trust. But when you speak about it, start to speak like someone who is free. In other words, let us not say, I can never change. That's just who I am. I've always been that way and I'll always be that way. Have you ever heard someone say that? Have you ever said that about yourself? Well, if you're in Christ, it's not true. Let us instead start saying, I have this particular sin struggle. And even though I may feel like I can't change, I know by the power of the Spirit I can because I'm free from the power of this sin in Christ. Or let us not say, I just couldn't stop myself. I had to. I just had to. Instead, let's say, I gave in to my flesh. I chose to sin. And I may have felt like I had no choice, but I know that in Christ, I do have the power to choose not to. Please understand what I'm saying. I'm not saying pretend like you don't have sin struggles. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying when we talk about them, when we speak about it to other people, let's speak in a way that is true about our identity in Christ. I'm not saying it is easy. And I'm not saying we don't need help from God and from others that God has placed in our lives. But I am saying let us stop speaking like we are slaves and start speaking like we are free in Jesus. And as we begin to believe that this is actually true about ourselves, not because of some power in me, but because of Jesus, then real and lasting change can begin to happen. Because true freedom is only found in Jesus, we should act, we should speak, we should train our minds to think in line with scripture like we are free from slavery to sin.